Welcome back to Lifting the Lid. This time it's a lockdown special with someone world infamous for spray painting quantum poetry onto live sheep. Crime novelist, poet, science poetry installation artist and playwright Valerie Laws. She's had 13 books published, written 12 commissioned plays for stage and BBC Radio and she's worked as a writer with pathologists and neuroscientists. She also happens to be my mum and we spent a good few months in lockdown together. So I'm thrilled to bring this podcast to you. Hope you enjoy it. Valerie Laws, welcome to Lifting the Lid. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So you shot to fame with a very special project, didn't you? Quantum Sheep, which hit headline news all around the world and still gets talked about today. Can you jump straight in and tell us all about it? Yes, it was quite a surprise to me as well. It became very famous. I had the idea of uh, creating a new form of poetry called a quantum haiku, which was to be spray painted onto the backs of sheep. So I wrote a 14 word poem and spray painted the words onto 14 sheep, which a farmer very kindly let me do. And uh, the sheep weren't very cooperative, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) they, they were fine. It was special paint, by the way, it's special sheep paint that the farmers used to mark them. So, uh, And the idea was that the poem would be rewritten as the sheep moved around and uh, potentially I think it was something like 80 billion different possible poems uh, would have been created if the sheep and I had lived long enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Where did you come up with the idea for that? I was on the Roman wall and uh, and I could see the cloud shadows moving across the fields below me and they looked a bit like grazing sheep and I started thinking about the sheep reflecting the clouds and the clouds reflecting the sheep and uh, the principles of quantum mechanics, which I was studying at the time. And the main principles are uh, randomness, which was built into the project and the influence of the observer on the observed, which is obviously the observer sees the different poems and puts their own interpretations on them. And duality, so the sheep and the clouds were dual ways of looking at the same things. And the idea was that, well, I actually got a Arts Council grant to pursue the project. Uh, I, I thought it might get into the Morpeth Herald, but uh, it was at a small farm in Northumberland. Um, but it was it just sort of hit all the headlines and it was all around the world. And I was interviewed for numerous radio stations, TV features, and lots of people copied it. Teachers were having kids running around the playground with words stuck on their backs and It went a bit nuts. (laughs) And of course, uh, I think the press really liked it because of all the punning headlines that they could have. Everybody loves a pun. Yes, especially Um, about sheep. There are so many possibilities. Yeah, I remember being at school and people actually coming up to me and asking me about it and being like, it's your mum who wrote the words on the back of the sheep. Um, So cool. So you mentioned, obviously, that you were studying quantum physics as well. You've always been fascinated with science and poetry combined, haven't you? Yes, I began by doing an English degree many years ago um, at the normal age. And then I've always written poetry and read a lot of poetry and other kinds of literature, but I was always interested in science. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a child, but I was told that girls didn't do that. Good times. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> could have been a whole different career path if yes. it had been a little bit later. So later on, I um, ended up doing 
a maths and theoretical physics degree as well. Uh, so I was able to study quite a lot on that. And I'm also very interested in biological sciences, anatomy and neuroscience, which have also been a large part of my work. I had some um, residencies where you get sort of attached to an institution to be a writer and interpret the scientists' work to the public. So I had several of those at very high profile science institutes and organisations in various parts of the country. Amazing. So you're an award-winning author. You've published 13 books covering several different genres from poetry to crime fiction to non-fiction. You're a playwright with 12 commissioned plays. Um, I mean, you're covering so many different types of writing in different genres. Why do you use so many different genres for your writing? I think it's just that ideas come to me and they seem to come with the genre built in. So if I have an idea that seems to fit crime fiction then it's a crime novel and then if I have an idea that might become a poem then that's what it is or it could be uh, an installation because I do uh, for exhibitions I get commissioned sometimes to write poetry which moves and changes either electronic in electronic form or um, in some other form like the sheep or uh, I also did one on beach balls which was on BBC two television so uh yeah, I do a lot of different genres and the plays too. I They tend to come as an idea for a play. They're usually about, quite often they're about speaking for someone or speaking for a kind of person who didn't really have a voice I for various that. reasons, for various cultural reasons. Yeah, I think one, one that stands out to me is The Head in a Jar. Oh yes, well that was a bit of a career highlight really. Well, I had a residency uh, to write poetry with funded by the Wellcome Trust and I was attached to King's College London anatomy department and I actually was able to go into the human dissection laboratories and watch human dissections and work with the medical students and write poetry and I also was attached to the anatomy museum there and one of the specimens was a well, what would you call it a severed head basically of an old lady who was, was very badly disfigured by a particular condition that she'd had for a long, long time. And I wrote a play about her called Nout to Look At. And uh, I'm very proud to say that it was bought by radio, BBC Radio, because uh, I have always liked Radio 4 drama. And this was on one of the Radio 3 drama slots. And uh, it was a big moment for me. And also very interesting to be down in London while they were recording the play with the actors to see how it's done uh, that's my only radio play. My others are all live stage plays, which were also great to do. Really cool. Mm. Um, your first career was as a teacher. Uh, then there was a pivotal moment in your life that changed your career path, wasn't there? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, uh, I did actually work as a youth hostel warden briefly. And then I <laughs> decided uh, maybe £17.50 a week. I could be a bit more ambitious <laughs> materially. So I became a teacher. Not exactly money bags at the time, but... Uh, I, I really loved the job. Uh, I was involved in a very unpleasant car crash. Uh, I was just basically sitting there, not actually taking part in doing anything, but I was just very badly injured during the, the crash, which I remember very vividly and had a lot of injuries, which are still with me 34 years later. And so I was disabled and still am. In fact, it's one of those things that tends to get worse. And so I was, as it were, invalided out of teaching. Uh, although there were those who said, why do you have to leave? Because all teachers do is just sit there, which was certainly news to me. <laughs> I was teaching young 
children. I was head of year in a middle school. So I had already had one of my children and then I had the other one after I was disabled. Uh, very painful, but lots of things to be happy about, including the fact that I wasn't dead, which I very nearly was in the accident. And I began working on some co-authored modern language books, textbooks, which became bestsellers. So that was very uh, ego boosting when uh, I'd lost my, as it were, career. So bringing up my children and obviously I had another one. Oh, who was that? Oh, maybe that was me. <laughs> Save the best to last. No, yeah, no offence yeah. to my brother. But <laughs> Sorry, Robin, if you're uh, listening, which yes, you should be. So uh, doing various work like that. And then, as I say, I had already done an English degree and then I did a maths and physics degree while I was bringing up my children and right and we did these modern language books and then I ended up doing a master's degree in creative writing just to force myself to get on with the creative writing rather than putting all sorts of other things first which is very easy to do and then I just I'd had the odd thing published but then it all sort of took off and I ended up becoming a professional writer so one door closes, another opens and all that sort of thing, as they say. Yeah, 100%. And yeah. obviously since then, like you've just gone from strength to strength with your work. And I don't know if you want to pick out a couple of highlights from your career that kind of spring to mind. Well, we've already mentioned the radio play that was special. And of course, Quantum Sheep. Uh, it was pretty special when my second crime novel, The Operator, when I heard that it had been taken up by W.H. Smith and was going to be sold in all the airports and stations, that was something pretty special because I didn't have sort of a big publisher behind me. It was a small press called Red Squirrel and it was amazing to see the book, do quite a bit of travelling and to see it in the airports and sometimes in the charts was pretty special. Yeah, I remember um, seeing it on your birthday in the, I think it was the train station or something. And just like sending a photo of it to you and being like, oh my God, it brings it to Ray Smith. And then actually someone, uh, one of my friends texted me being like, oh, someone sitting next to me on the plane is reading The Operator. Yes. Like that's so cool that you can say that you, you know what I mean? To see your book out there living its life. Yes, I have really I've cool. seen, uh, yeah, people have sent me pictures of people reading it abroad or on planes or trains. I have actually seen... My first crime novel, The Rotting Spot, I remember seeing someone reading that on the train and that was quite a special moment. Uh, also, one of my installations, uh, Slicing the Brain, which was about neuroscience and dementia, uh, it was created for a special exhibition uh, run by Newcastle University as part of a special project that I was uh, the writer-in-residence for. And the exhibition that it was part of also featured works by Renoir and Duggar, a couple of new guys on the block. <laughs> And Henry Moore, and that was pretty special too. Uh, one has to cling to these moments because uh, they don't come that often. That's writing so is incredible. Quite, writing has quite a lot of um, darker moments or times when not much seems to happen or you lose opportunities or you get rejected. So it, it's very special when things go right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine, obviously, especially, you know, with poetry poetry readings and you know when you launch a book and you're doing book like book launches and talks and stuff it must be quite nerve-wracking putting yourself out there and having to basically having to sell yourself like your story and sell sell your book to people basically that must be really quite intense 
Yes, you do. Writers do have to do that now. Um, you're not allowed to sit in an attic anymore and just write books. But I, I actually enjoy performing, particularly as a poet. You don't make very much money from selling poetry books, but you, well, from getting your poetry books sold, as it were. But you, you're more likely. Well, at one time, not now. <laughs> uh, at one time, you were more likely to make a sort of living from doing performances of poetry at festivals, literary festivals all over the place. I've done a lot of travelling and then I've performed my work all over the world, New York, Egypt, all sorts of places. Um, I really enjoy performing, actually. It's really fun. I like to make people laugh and I like to make people cry. And I, I write quite a wide range of poetry. Some of it's um, quite filthy, actually, and quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I write quite a lot of sex poems, which I'm sure you have cringed over in the past. There's been many a moment at a book launch where there has been a sex poem and I've sat there getting redder and redder. Yeah, so Do you I know can what, imagine. though? Like, it's so cool having a mum who has yeah i don't know who who writes poems about sex and death and living and and just loads of really interesting topics oh, that's a pretty cool claim to fame to be fair well that's so very gratifying that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes i tend to make sort of funny poems about sex with more serious poems about uh, how brains die in going into the deep science of it and that kind of thing and um all sorts of different genres of poetry so that's all been part of it really I, I do enjoy the book launches and the events mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely something you passed on to me as well since I also did poetry yes. and creative writing and performing <laughs> um so I just want to talk about the crime novels again a little bit oh yes um so you set them obviously at our beloved coast yes um which East was coast yes which was something pretty new at the time with regards to you know like a location crime novel in that way wasn't it there were, I think there were one or two who'd written books set actually very, very locally, although obviously people had set books in the northeast. But my first book, The Rotting Spot, was set in Seton Sluice, where I grew up, very thinly disguised with a few name changes. I'm not sure anyone had actually written about that before. And then the second one is based in, the operator is based in Whitley Bay and Tynemouth. Um, I have very deep roots in the northeast, which is where I was born and where I live now, so... It was special to write about those areas. Mm. And obviously all the, the kind of skull collecting side of things. Um, obviously, we live in a house where there are several skulls. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which has always gone down really well, either on dates or um, <laughs> when yes. friends come over to the house for the mm. first time. And I used to be like, do you want to come see the skulls in my mum's study? Um, <laughs> oh, I see. You've been showing people around my skulls. Well, <laughs> yes, my first crime novel, The Rotting Spot, was actually about skull collecting. And I did do a bit of skull collecting because uh, I lived and worked for a short time in Wales, West Wales and then North Wales and collecting dead birds and animals from beaches and cutting off the heads and rotting them down and boiling up the skulls to sit on the shelves is a was so, sort of hobby, you know, there's a this is, there's not that much to do in the countryside maybe, I don't know. So yeah, I do have a few left. The some of the more hardy skulls have survived various moves and uh are still there. Yeah. Mm, I, used to, cool. I used to take them into school when I was a teacher and uh, the children used to love writing about them. 
Yeah, we've got that horse horse, horse skull, skull yes. that's pretty cool, which still has its teeth in it. Yes. Um, yeah. The children thought that was a dinosaur when I was a teacher because it's so big. It is massive. <laughs> yes. And actually, I feel like we should give a shout out to the backbone that has followed us, followed you around various houses over the years. Uh, yes, I do have a human spine, which uh, I, you know, I think human specimens in particular have to be treated with great respect. It was, it's a... It was a specially prepared backbone, which was for medical students. And one of the flats I lived in as a young student, someone had thrown it out into the bin. So I rescued it from the bin and I've carried it around, kept it ever since and looked after it. And I wrote a poem about it and performed that several times. And some of the poems that I've written have been about very um, perhaps difficult subjects about dementia, which I helped to care for my mother who died of Alzheimer's disease, uh, which is one of the things that made me interested in the dying brain and writing poetry about that and studying it with scientists, which I have been able to do, which has been a great privilege. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Yeah, it was um, a very difficult time going through that with uh, Yes, it was, yes. Seeing that, I guess, obviously you're interested in science anyway, but also being able to explore... I guess the science behind that potentially could have helped you to process it or something, or at least yes, it's that thing yes. of knowing about something helps you kind of like, yeah, to, to grapple with what's actually happening. Yes, because obviously your grandpa died within a year mm-hmm. of your yeah. grandma and she died of dementia and then he had an aneurysm we didn't know about, which burst and then he died very quickly. And I became interested in exactly what death what happens when someone dies. I'm just one of those people, the more I know about something, the better it helps me to deal with it. I know there are some people that are the other way around and don't want to know about these things. It's just the way you are. Mm -hmm. That's just the way I'm hardwired to be. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that's something that um, definitely makes sense. I think I'm I'm like that with flying. Um, I actually love flying, but when I went through a little phase of suddenly being really scared, I think scared of death or scared of something happening and you only get to that age where you realize bad things happen mm-hmm. um but the more i learned about actually like the the process you know what i mean like the way a plane flies it kind of obviously i'm not a genius in it but it helps it just helps you know what's going on a bit more and not feel as terrified doesn't it yes i mean i i actually did have a flying lesson once and uh i i love to fly and i don't feel nervous even when there's quite bad turbulence but obviously it took a lot of years before I could drive on a dual carriageway again after the car crash mm-hmm. and so I, I mean I'm very well aware that cars are much more dangerous than planes are yeah of course yes definitely I can imagine that mm-hmm. um yeah I think it's incredible I've always thought it's incredible how you how strong you are and how how well you've kind of created your life again after that well thank you i mean i've i've reinvented myself several times and i think uh, everybody has to be ready to do that several times in a lifetime different things come along that you never thought would and turn everything upside down yeah definitely and then you have to pick yourself up and find out what you can do mm-hmm. definitely um so obviously you went full-time with your career in writing but you've always been a big writer and reader you know studied some pretty interesting topics uh earlier on in your lifetime oh well when I did my English degree um I don't really know why I put myself through this but I deliberately chose the most arcane subject so I studied Anglo-Saxon 
early Middle English, Middle English, Old Icelandic. So I had to learn all of those and it was quite difficult to find the time when I was uh, the same age that no, most students are because obviously I was partying most of the time mm-hmm. and uh, didn't really want to work very much. Yeah. But, but I was genuinely fascinated by all those things as well as all the normal reading novels and poems throughout English literature and other literature and translation. So, yes, I don't know why I do these things to myself. Doing the maths degree was a bit insane as well. But uh, I'd always been bad at maths at school and hated it. And then when I was training to be a teacher, for the first time, I understood mathematics at the simplest level. And that's really important with maths. You have to understand the very beginning or you, you just stay lost. And... I thought I'm going to prove to myself that I'm not stupid and I ended up doing a degree in maths and theoretical physics. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was a bit of an extreme reaction, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. It's just refusing to accept. Um, I'm sure that you weren't actually terrible at it in the first place, but um, yeah, it's nice to give yourself those challenges. It was the worst subject apart from PE. (laughs) (laughs) Whose worst subject wasn't PE is my question. It's like, everyone was the last picked for netball club. Everyone was the last picked for this. Everyone was the slowest in the 800 metre race. Yes. Absolutely, uh, yeah, not fond memories about PE. Um, hmm. Just a couple of other questions for you. What was the first writing job that you got or the first kind of special writing commission that you that you got? Um, I've had a lot of commissions um, and residencies and they've all been pretty special, but I think perhaps it's always very special when you get your first poem published in a small literature magazine or win a prize. I won a prize in a poetry competition run by a local paper and uh, the the prize was to go and it wasn't first prize, I was a runner-up and uh, the prize was a poetry course in Yorkshire and that that was uh, something quite special. Um, And then I suppose my first play commission came at a very turbulent time of my life and my first professional commission as a playwright was uh, to write a play about local history, about Collingwood and Trafalgar, in fact, which is what I wanted to write about. And that was for a community play, which you were in. I was in it. Yes, you were in it as one of Collingwood's daughters. as one of the daughters. (laughs) Yes, you've been in a couple of my plays in various ways, the the more community ones. Yeah. Um, I suppose any kind of recognition is very special for a writer because in some ways you're quite a small voice in the wilderness. And so any kind of recognition or notice is quite special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'm just having a flashback to one of my favourite moments when obviously as a child and kind of growing up and and you being a writer and this kind of seeing you live this lifestyle and thinking, oh God, that's so cool. Like my mum's famous, <laughs> like she's doing this, she's doing that. And we went to London because one of your poems was published in a book and we, and there was a, this like fancy event and the Poet Laureate was there and there were all oh, these like yes. chocolate coated strawberries being handed <laughs> out, which obviously is like one of the key things I oh, remember. Yes, yes. What book was it? Oh, that was a long time ago. I think that it was, was a long time. Yes, yeah. it was a book of artworks, and the poet, the poems were chosen to go with the artworks or something like that. Yeah, and there was yes. a big exhibition Gosh, in London, and I just ago. remember following the chocolate strawberry guy around <laughs> the room, eating these amazing chocolate strawberries, and then the poet laureate at the time. 
Andrew Motion uh, then kind of appeared behind me and then introduced himself and um, as a really big poetry fan at the time myself was all like oh my god I need to shake his hand and I had all this like chocolate strawberry all over my hands and I couldn't <laughs> shake his hand properly and he was just really polite and just kind of yeah that was um, I just remember that as that was quite a fond moment from, uh, from oh, my that childhood. That was a very early moment but you were involved in a lot of my books because uh, you've been part of my book launches You've sung at each of my poetry book launches and acted a few things out and Yeah, been been fully involved. It's yes. been a mother daughter yes. journey together. And of course you followed in my footsteps going to the same university English department. I did. Hello, you didn't do Anglo Saxon for some strange reason. I can't imagine why. Yeah, I also didn't commit as much as you did to be fair, you know. I think I got a standing ovation for actually going to one of my lectures once. But we'll <laughs> brush past that one. Yes. <laughs> um, I think you definitely were a lot more of a kind of academic than I am. Um Yeah. Well, Possibly more practical on my side, but I, but, uh, I absolutely loved the like. I loved writing poetry and I love reading books and mm. yeah, all those things in common. I remember actually you coming home one day and telling me that you'd met the Queen as well, which is amazing. <laughs> well, it was certainly a surprise to me. Uh, I was invited to the grand opening of the Newcastle City Library, and the Queen was going to be opening it. And I thought, oh, that'd, that'd be interesting. I might be able to see her. But being short, I probably won't even see her because I won't be able to see over people's heads. So I turned up in my skinny jeans and trainers and uh, everybody else was wearing fascinators and the like. And then I was handed a piece of paper and said, you're one of the people who's going to meet the Queen. I was rather surprised. So there was only maybe four of us writers, I think, from the area who were meeting the Queen. So, yes, that was a very straight, rather a surreal experience, to say the least. She was a surprisingly impressive woman. Very small and uh, somehow very impressive in a way. And um, it was just just strange, really. And uh, so I wasn't really dressed properly for it, but uh, nobody seemed to mind. No, and I'm pretty sure I remember you telling her that it was a shame she didn't read much. <laughs> <laughs> you said to her, you said, do you get a chance to read much? And, or she said, oh, I don't, I don't really read very much. And you said, mm -hmm. that's a shame. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not like she has to drive herself. I mean, she could always read. <laughs> she was reading the car. Maybe she's more of a podcast. Maybe, maybe, maybe she maybe is. Maybe we can get the Queen yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll ask her, you know, Liz and I are like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so actually, you have a new book out in the moment, don't you? Yes, it's a book co-written with two other writers, both of them scientists. Um, I'm writer-in-residence at a physic garden, which a lot of people call it a psychic garden, but it's a physic garden. It's basically a garden in the countryside in Northumberland, which grows basically medicinal plants, medicinal herbs. But the people who run it, uh, Professor Elaine Perry, who founded it, and her daughter, Dr. Nicolette Perry. They run this physic garden and all the herbs in it have been scientifically proven to work, particularly on brain cells. So it's a book about how to grow medicinal plants for health and wellness and well-being and mood and so on. Um, but they've all been proved in the traditional scientific way, so they're not just um, traditional Although a lot of them have very old traditions going back a long way. And it turns out that a lot of them contain chemicals which do bond with uh, brain cells in particular ways. 
So, uh, so cool. we've just, the three of us together have written this book to, as a sort of legacy really for, uh, for their vision. And the garden goes on and it's needed more now than ever, I suppose, because uh, there are so many um, big companies taking out patents on medicines and drugs and making drugs very expensive. So if you can help yourself with a fairly common plant, then why not? And the book's called Grow Your Own Physic Garden. So perhaps some people will, even if it's only a window box or a couple of pots on this windowsill. That's all you need, though, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Where can people get the book? From Dilston Physic Garden, which is the book... The book has been published by the the, uh, the, the foundation, the Physic Garden. So, um, Dilston Physic Garden in Corbridge. So, they have a website and you can buy it through there. Great. That sounds good. I'll pop that in the show notes. As well as the Physic Garden book, where can people get your poetry and your crime novels? Well, my crime novels and some of the poetry are on Amazon Kindle. So that's quite easy to find, The Rotting Spot and The Operator, and my science and sex poems, <laughs> All That Live. Selling them well. Which is a kind of CSI poetry, I suppose you could say. And uh, my website, ValerieLaws.com, has links to some of my, to films of some of my installations. Uh, the, the electronic ones uh, that ran on in exhibitions and also my... The Sheep and the Beach Balls, which were commissioned for BBC Two documentary. So, uh, yes, do follow those up and I hope you'll find them interesting. Amazing. Uh, Thank you so much for talking with me in our lockdown special. Yes, Uh, lockdown special (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Yeah, this podcast was always going to happen. And then when we basically got quarantined together, it was like, this seems like the perfect time to interview you because um, you've got some fascinating things to, to share with everyone. So thank you so much for joining us on Lifting the Lid. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to help other people find us and spread the word to your friends. See you next time.